all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. The second reading is from 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Maxim, for leading us so well this morning. And um, thank you to Tim as well for leading our prayers. And it's great that our children's groups are, are going on under the, the fantastic leadership of Becca and the team that are downstairs. And they're also joining in uh, looking at this new series in Thessalonians as we work through this letter together over the next uh, number of weeks. Origin stories, you know, the background, where are we from? They're key to any culture, aren't they? To know your history, to know what's gone before. I mean, if you're a comic hero, you need a really compelling uh, origin story, don't you? Marvel Studios are full of them. Films like Star Wars have whole franchises that uh, spin out what has happened before and before and, and, and led to where we are. Shows, TV shows like who do you think um, you are? Th their fascination is seeing this journey of celebrities finding something out, something about previous generations that makes sense of who they are. Um, the repair shop. I don't know how many of you are into that. I have got into it. Um, David, if you flash up a um, PowerPoint there. There's, there's this one episode that really got under my skin, choked me up. It was um, the RAF bomber jacket of a grandfather that needed to be restored, and this guy, John, brings it in to the workshop. And it's laid out on the table, and Susie does her, her magic, her skill, and restores this coat, which um, the grandson had brought in. is his grandfather's who'd passed away. And he did it as a gift for his dad. And what's fascinating in, look, I even have the repair shop book. And, and it was such a popular episode that they obviously wrote it up in this book. But it said, when the jacket was unveiled, John's head, that's the grandson, swiveled towards his father. Any concerns fell away as Graham focused wordlessly 
or one of the few remaining links he had with a father who has gone from his life at an early stage. Graham decided that John, his son, would now be the custodian. And Graham said, we have been brought together by a simple piece of clothing. If we look after the jacket, it will be a focal point to reflect on these people who are no longer with us, but are with us in thought. It's fascinating, isn't it? Even an inanimate object can have such powerful ties, linking us back to the past. And I suppose these things, these origin stories, these programs, they, they connect deep down with us, I think, because they tap into this, this desire, maybe some search within us to find, how did we get here? Why are we here? How did we get here? Why are we here? They're two really good questions for us as people to wrestle with, but also as a church. As a family, as an organization brought together under God, how do we get here and why are we here? Um, Grace Church itself, which is actually a young church, all things considered, probably been around for about 17 uh, years, established officially in 2005. So, you know, 17 is that sort of independent, awkward teenager type. <laughs> there were two founding ministers who were Church of England ministers, John Hindley, Phil Kemer, who planted the church, and they called it The Plant at that point. Well, so how, how do we get here? Well, two ministers had a gospel vision. They had support from other churches, part of the Northwest Gospel Partnership. They had uh, support from places like Holy Trinity Platt down the road, and they had a new initiative, which was to reach particularly students in Manchester. And I think Maxim was probably one of the founding group leading us today all through the generous power of God, whose plan was to spread his good news here in Manchester. Why? Why are we here? Well, chatting with uh, John, it's clear that the, the, the key focus was to connect with people who don't do church, people in their 20s and 30s who aren't Christian, who, who aren't connected, who haven't had an opportunity to consider the gospel, to give them good opportunities as they faithfully shared that good news. They also wanted to help grow and develop Christians. So part of the DNA, uh, as they saw God's kingdom, was to have people serving however they wanted, in whatever way, have a go, so that you can grow. And so that wherever you go, wherever God leads, you can be part of his kingdom work. And those things, I think, are still utterly important to us today. How and why are we here? And as we work through 1 Thessalonians over the next uh, two months, we're, we're going to see... God's answers to the how and why for his church. So let's um, keep our Bibles open at Acts 17. Um, and we're going to have a, spend most of our time in Acts 17, which gives us background. It gives us Luke's account of what happened in this great Macedonian capital, uh, Thessalonica, which we know today as Saloniki in North Greece. And having been in Philippi, so Paul and his team were in Philippi, uh, they travel along the coast to this great city. And Thessalonica was a commercial, it was a cosmopolitan hub of trade and culture. It was a melting pot of spirituality and worship as well. And the first thing that we see in the passage in, in Acts 17 is Paul's method for sharing the gospel. Let's have a look at this together. So verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. See, straight away, Paul's primary target is the synagogue. It's the area, it's the place, the building, where the Jewish people would come together to read the Scriptures, to encourage each other uh, to follow the Lord. And Paul's done this previously on his first missionary trip. Uh, back in Salamis, he went there, chapter 13, verse 5, to um, Poseidon, Antioch. He went there, uh, chapter 13, verse 14, straight to the synagogue, and in Iconium as well, chapter 14, verse 1. So we see this pattern. Well, he's going to his own people. He's going to the Jews who knew their scriptures, who'd been entrusted with God's promises, and who were looking for the Messiah. That is God's chosen king, the savior to come. And we're told also that it, it wasn't just the Jews who were there, but among the Jews were God-fearing Greeks. They were coming to the synagogue because they were seeking truth. Whether it was the intellectual strength of the Jewish belief in one Lord that appealed to them against the polytheism of their culture, whether it was the clear ethical absolutes in the face of immorality, these God-fearers were drawn to something that made sense of life. They were looking further. And clearly, both groups, therefore, were people who were uh, fertile soil, shall we say. Fertile soil for the gospel. The gospel seed to be planted. And so, part of Paul's method here, in a new city, is going to people where there's already a connection. Where there's a point of contact. Where there's some openness to God. It's interesting for us, isn't it, as we pray that through. We will look through our connections, our networks. Where's their openness? Sometimes it comes unexpected from people. Right, sort of left field, out of nowhere, that conversation sparks. And we can be the point of connection to help them go. Maybe one just one little step further, recommending a book. Maybe it's reading a bit of a passage. Maybe it's showing some online resources or even bringing them to a church meeting. Trying Christianity Explored with them. Looking for that ready connection, that openness and being obedient to God in it. Next, we see Paul's method, and it's thorough. We're told uh, he's reasoning with them. Verse, three, he, uh, verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures on three Sabbath days, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He's reasoning, he's explaining, he's proving he didn't just share hard facts or spout out statements about Jesus as if it were the national lottery numbers. No, there's an engagement. There's an engagement here. Randy Newman, an author and evangelist that I have a huge amount of respect for, having heard him uh, in public, he's so honest and so helpful. In his, uh, he's written a number of books, and in this book, Bringing the Gospel Home, he shares an experience of his commute in Washington, D.C. Now, I, I've been on the bus when someone has done something similar, so it totally resonated uh, with, with me. He's on the metro, on the subway in Washington, D.C., and he said that, you know, like quite a lot of our places here in England as well, um, you know, the unwritten command is, thou shalt not talk to anyone. And this was the case in Washington. Uh, a man got onto the metro carriage and announced, may I have your attention, please? Now, at this point, Randy wasn't looking forward to what was coming next. Neither was the woman sitting next to him. She started screaming, no, stop it! 
at which point the man pulled out a book from his pocket and began to sing, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I won't try and put that into music. I'd need uh, Elisa here to do that well. And people uh, started to breathe a sigh of relief that it was a book and nothing more serious. But not the woman. She carried on screaming. It was a strange duet, Randy says. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Shut up, stop. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Somebody put a sock in his mouth. Four verses later, four verses later, Fanny Crosby, the hymns author, would have been impressed with his perseverance. And as the, the train pulled in, he exited the carriage. And as he got out, he announced, have a very blessed day, everyone. The woman then announced, I have to put up with that rubbish slightly stronger word in reality, every day. Randy looked round the carriage and was certain that almost everyone identified with the screaming woman, not the singing evangelist. Now, obviously, the guy's heart was in the right place. Authentic evangelism can often include music and singing, but it will always be a mixture of putting forward good arguments of listening well to people, listening well, engaging with their searching questions, reading the Bible together and looking at the answers, explaining it, illustrating it with our lived experiences and testimonies. I can imagine Paul retelling his testimony of being blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus to help people see the life-changing power of Jesus' good news. It wasn't a dry lecture. It was engaging, it was heartfelt, but it was robust. And Paul's evangelism is rooted in the scriptures. It's always pointing to Jesus. And so the method must always serve the message. So what's the message? Have a look at verse 3, that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Now, obviously, what we've got here is a headline summary of the many hours of teaching, of discussing, of debating, of studying together. And we're also told that Paul took three Sabbaths and probably the weekdays in between to teach and share the good news with those who are interested. And if we want an idea of the content of Paul's message, well, then Luke has given that to us. You just have to flip back a few chapters. An example message preached um, to Sidian Antioch in chapter 13, verse 16 to 41. You get a more detailed, even then, that's not the whole lot, but the extended highlights of Paul's talk. And in it, Paul moves from God rescuing his people from Egypt through to King David and the establishment of the kingdom and then introducing Jesus as David's descendant, who is the savior of Israel. In that talk, he refers to Psalm 2. He refers, he refers to Isaiah 55, verse 3. He goes to Psalm 16. And he concludes with the ultimate fulfillment, the resurrection. So in chapter 13, verse 36... Paul finishes his talk in that synagogue saying, now when David had served God's purposes, he fell asleep. That is, he was dead. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Can you see how the ultimate is the resurrection? That's where it ends. And the promise is one of utter forgiveness, the fulfillment of Moses' law. You can see how that will connect with the original listeners. Paul targeted the mind and the will. He wasn't interested in a superficial feel-good response. And persuading the minds and hearts of his hearers was resting on the fact that they need Jesus as their saviour. This persuasion, this, this work of discussion and convincing is only something that God can do. Uh, but then we see a mixed response, don't we? I hope you pick that up as we were going through the reading. Positively, some Jews and a large number, literally a multitude of God-fearing Greeks and prominent influential women all came to faith in Jesus. Uh, this is miraculous. Paul, Paul makes that clear in his letter, which we'll look at in more detail next week. But in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, so don't think it was all the arguments or the fact that I preached really well or that I was able to show you how the Old Testament connects with the New. That's important, but it didn't come simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You see, it was God's work as God's word was open. And I love the fact that Paul and Luke highlight, and we can't lose this, highlight the role that these prominent women had among the believers. Did you notice that? It was mentioned, prominent women. It happens again in Berea as well. But it's also happened earlier in Philippi. In, um, earlier in chapter 16, we're told that Lydia, a businesswoman in Philippi, is the first convert. And then she hosts the church in her home. Well, why is this such an important note? Why is this here in Acts? Well, the gospel is freely given for all people, both male and female. There's no division, equal and precious in God's sight. Any nation, any ethnicity, any language, for all. But then we also see that when we look at history, and particularly the Macedonian history, women had social and legal rights, which meant they were very influential. They played a full part, a large part in society. They were involved in receiving envoys, building temples, founding cities, and acting on occasion as regents and even co-rulers. It's phenomenal. Influence. These women like Lydia in Philippi are influencers. They're entrepreneurs who will be vital in spreading the gospel, supporting gospel work. Everyone counts. The Grace Church was so blessed by men and women in ministry, but especially women who can be connectors, who influence, who get things done. is amazing. Everyone counts. Everyone has a place in God's kingdom. And Paul isn't interested in the spotlight. It's, the spotlight is on God's people on mission. And actually, the real spotlight in Acts always is on the risen Lord Jesus, whose mission it is. I love the example of Lady Selina of Huntingdon. Now, she might not be a name that's familiar to you, and it goes back to the 1700s, but the Lady of Huntingdon, Countess of Huntingdon, was someone who supported George Whitfield's ministry. Now, George Whitfield was an evangelist who worked both here in the UK and also in America, and was a huge inspiration for people like Billy Graham and others. 
uh, he had a phenomenal uh, preaching ministry. Uh, he was received, he, he'd be in regular contact with Benjamin Franklin, US president. Uh, he was one who could work with the high influencers and also speak to the average person on the street. And he had an absolute rock-solid conviction to share God's good news wherever he went. And she supported his ministry. Without the Lady of Huntingdon, the Countess of Huntingdon, George Whitfield's ministry would be very hard to get going because it needed financing. And she wasn't captive to her wealth or her influence amongst royalty and others. She put it clearly when she said, Mr. Whitfield, I watched God save souls through the light of his all-glorious gospel. And now I see the one thing worth living for must be proclaiming the love of God to man in Jesus Christ. I am nothing. Christ is all. Isn't that phenomenal? To use all those resources towards the gospel. She carried on, God chose me to be a member of England's nobility, and now I'm ready to use my position for Jesus' sake. She went on to establish 64 meeting houses in England. Now, at the time, she was doing that because the Church of England uh, wasn't facilitating preaching the gospel. She wanted to see it happen there, but it, it, all over the place it wasn't. So she built and set up places, meeting rooms, for people to then have gospel outreach where George Whitfield could preach and others. 64 meeting houses. And she provided um, teaching colleges for the education of ministers to be at work in them. Very strategic as well. You see, when the gospel takes hold of people's lives, life is transformed. The fruit here is seen in both generosity and perseverance in trials because whilst the, the gospel is gloriously um, received, it is also gloriously disruptive and it attracts opposition, doesn't it? In that mixed response, we see people accepting, but we also see opposition. Now, whether between, back in chapter 17, look at verses 4 and 5. Some scholars debate whether there was a gap between verse 4 and 5, a gap of time. Because just three weeks, just over three weeks seems a, a very short amount of time to see that number of many people come to faith and so on. But um, whatever it was, there was still a short period of time, whether it was three weeks or three months. There was a gap, and then things don't go well. It's clear that Paul and his team were not welcome. Verse 5, but other Jews were jealous. And it's understandable. Paul's come in and disrupted. He's divided their synagogue. This risen Messiah, this good news is challenging everything they know, and driven by envy, they need to get rid of this odd preacher. Makes sense, doesn't it? So rent a mob, they start a riot, this cosmopolitan city's thrown into disarray. Jason, he's, he's one of the new converts. He's caught, collared by it, brought in with other believers, bundled off in front of the city officials. And there, the city officials are just going, we need to get some calm here. We certainly don't want this going any further to Rome. And we see the same response again in Berea. The charges against Paul, are they inflated? I think so. They're untrue. Paul's message did talk about a coming king and a kingdom that was going to come, but he never said there should be an armed revolution. In fact, in Romans, he says, honor the government. Has he caused trouble? Has he literally turned the world upside down? Well, hardly. But 
Isn't it ironic that this gospel goes to the heart of Rome? It does turn the world upside down. Their words have the ring of truth there. But the damage was done, and Paul and his companions needed to make a quick exit for the sake of the new Christians, for the sake of peace, so that the gospel could be established. And so they're taken off and head off to a new mission opportunity in the cover of night. Now, it's worth applying at this point. Again, let's make this really clear. Christianity is not a popularity contest. It is not easy. It's not comfortable. We're not here to win opinion polls. What happened in Thessalonica is a helpful reminder about what we think success looks like, isn't it? Faithful gospel ministry isn't comfortable. Uh, I love the way um, the pastor Mervyn Elloff, who works in Cape Town, put it very succinctly. A true work of God will always have real conversions and real opposition. There's, there's part of that that we all look for and go, yay, let's have some of that. Real conversion, but not the opposition. And Paul, in his letter in Thessalonians 1 verse 6, celebrates the fact that the, the church received the message in the midst of severe suffering, and they received it with joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know what the next few years hold for us, do we? We don't know that individually. We don't know what that means as a church family. But are we prepared as a church to go through discomfort for faithfulness? Are we prepared to go, well, we want to grow, we want to see the gospel go out, but that will come at a cost. It will be hard. There will be opposition. There will be obstacles. That if we have a suffering saviour, then why do we think we should get through life like sailing through as if it's a, a Mediterranean cruise? It, it doesn't happen that way. And yet there's deep joy. There's a closeness to God in the midst of this. There's an understanding of how vital his kingdom is. Will we support each other in graciously sharing the good news, even when it leads to isolation, when it leads to being snubbed by other people, even Christians? The division can be there. Wouldn't it be the easiest thing in the world at this point for these young Christians to say, well, let's call the whole thing off. Wouldn't it be at that point, that's probably the motion I would have put forward. It's like, maybe we should just step back, cool things down. <laughs> let's just admit that we were fooled by a clever sort of operator, someone who's a bit of a religious con man came in, sounds good, but oh, look at the trouble. And look, if we apologize to our friends at the synagogue, just sort of eat humble pie for a few weeks, we can get back to normal. They'll let us back in and everything will calm down. The whole thing will be forgotten. And in one sense, I think maybe Paul, as we come to his letter, might have been thinking, ah, is that, what, is that what's happened there? As he's waiting in Athens on his own, have they decided to bench it all, put it to one side? This was the church that had lost their founding leaders. There was a riot. People were against them. How are they going to cope? There was so much left undone, so much teaching that needs to be finished. Interestingly, it feels a little bit like what happened with Western missionaries in China at the time that they were expelled in 1954. What's the church going to do? How's it going to survive? And again in Cambodia, 1975. How's it going to survive? Oh, 
it grows exponentially without the West involved <laughs> because it's the Lord's church in the face of persecution, such that now social commentators are saying China will be in the next few decades the epicenter of Christianity. That Cambodia has grown considerably, particularly in Protestant um, Christianity, in a place where there was a huge genocide. Maybe that gives us hope, not to take the foot off the pedal of praying and being active, but certainly for Ukraine and Russia. Who's in charge? And Paul prays. He's longing to see them. But a return isn't possible. And so what happens is he sends Timothy and Silas off at different points to help the Thessalonians. Whilst, he's in, whilst Paul's in Athens, he sends them back off. They meet up. And then Paul goes on to Corinth. Some time passes. And then Timothy, Silas, Paul, they're all reunited back in Corinth. And it's in Corinth that he hears Timothy's report about the Thessalonian church. And this letter that we now are given is his response to that report. And that's where we see this glorious reassurance. So if that's what's gone on in Acts 17, the first mission trip there, as we land in 1 Thessalonians, and just to close briefly here, what we see is the reassurance of the gospel in 1 Thessalonians, verses 1 to 3. They're in God and they're growing. The miracle of the Thessalonican church is that this new community in that city whilst they have their same home number, the same postcode, something massive has changed. They're living in the same place, but they've been transplanted into new soil, an eternal kingdom. They're now in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in him. And this is an everyday reality for all followers of Jesus. We are planted in his family. This is our identity. The church is a place of nourishment and growth. What does Paul say in verse 3? We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the original Greek, those verbs, produced, prompted, and inspired, aren't there. Um, they've been included by the translators to get the force of what Paul is saying, but the thrust of verse 3 is very clear. Real faith works. Real love labors. Real hope perseveres. And because all these things are seen in your life, that's evidence that you are with the Lord. You're Christians. And we'll come back to these verses next week, verses 1 to 10, uh, to look more deeply at them. But the faith that works is based on Jesus Christ and his rescue. What he's done. The love flows from the God who's restored us as his people and has called us to lovingly invest in the well-being of others. Hope is the expectation of Jesus' great work finished and the hope of him returning. So can you see that faith, hope and faith, love and hope, they act as this GPS, a constant GPS for us as disciples to stay on track with the Lord. We look up in faith, we look around in love, we look forward in hope. So being a Christian is more than saying so, it's showing so. It's doing it. And no wonder Paul is praying. He's praying on a daily basis for them, thanking God for them. These Thessalonian Christians are active proof 
of an internal reality. They are now in the Lord. And Paul knows the faithfulness of God. The work of the Lord Jesus will be completed. Just flick over. If you're in 1 Thessalonians now, you get three prayers. There's, there's this one here in verse 3. There's one that we'll look at in a few weeks' time in verse uh, chapter 3. And then in chapter 5, look what he prays. Verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Well, what great confidence that gives us. You see, when John went into the repair shop with that old RAF bomber jacket, he was confident. He was confident that Susie would be able to do the work needed and fix that jacket because of her expertise. But how much more confidence in the Lord Jesus, who is risen from the dead, who reigns now, sustaining the world, who is growing his church, ready for his return. That's where our confidence lies. This week, wherever you are and whoever you're with, you will be working by faith as a believer. You'll be laboring with love. You'll be enduring with hope. And this is evidence of God's work in you. You do this part of Grace Church, supporting one another. Yes, it's strenuous. Yes, it requires patience. But as Lady Huntington commented, now I see the one thing worth living for, Christ is all. So, as we close, maybe some practical stuff here. Will you commit to just praying? Go back to chapter 1, verse 3. Will, will you turn that into your own personal prayers? Prayers for yourself? Prayers for this church? These would be hallmarks we start to live out and continue to live out and go deeper into. The work of faith, the labor of love, the endurance of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray that for us, for each other. This week, why don't you take some time, I'd say probably about 25, 35 minutes, read 1 Thessalonians. You'll be able to read it in about 10, 15 minutes. But if you're like me, you need a little bit longer to let it sink in. If you want, read, um, not read, watch the Bible Project's video on 1 Thessalonians. Get that great overview can find it on YouTube. But as you're reading through 1 Thessalonians, just ask yourself, what, what am I learning about Jesus Christ here? Uh, what am I learning about what it means to be a follower? Uh, what am I learning about the church and what the church is called to do? Also, jot down the really tricky questions because there are a bunch of them in this letter. Jot down the things that are like, huh? what's going on there? Engage with it. But don't engage with it with the head. It's the heart as well. And that's what I'm praying for us over this series, that again we'll be changed. A living church serving the living God. Let's pray. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Thank you, Father. Would you lead us more into your love, that we would live out this faith, that we would live in the hope of uh, the return of Jesus, and that your love 
would spill out into all we do to show that love and share it with others. Amen.